Learning about Jesus from the one who was his closest friend. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn about truth and love from John the Beloved. We are looking at John uh, chapter 1, beginning at verse 5 today. Now, yesterday we talked about how this is the beloved disciple of Jesus, probably Jesus' closest disciple, definitely a very young man when he became a disciple of Jesus. The, the, the stories of the relationship of these two is a very, very strong relationship. There are a lot of uh, love here, almost like a mentor type of person for John, uh, older brother type of person for John, but even just a very, very strong, at the, at the Last Supper, there's this image of John reclining his head on Jesus' breast because there's just this uh, incredible love there. And, and so when John writes this epistle, he's writing it not only as, as this is Jesus' life, but this is what I saw. And John takes this, this step back from the, from the life of Jesus and says, what was that thing that we experienced? This, this man who was born in Bethlehem, lived with us, and then did three years of public ministry, died and rose again. Like, what was that? And so in John's gospel, you see a different type of gospel. And then in John's epistle, you see a different type of epistle. John is, is looking at Jesus from a very, very broad perspective as a cosmic event in time. That's, that's probably the best way to say what Jesus was to John. He, he wasn't just a man who lived, who I loved, who I cared for, who I saw die and resurrect. It was a cosmic event. As a matter of fact, I think John would say it's the cosmic event of time, which is a pretty bold statement. I mean, how many of us, when we're born, uh, you know, people say that was a cosmic event in time. I mean, for us, it was a cosmic event in time, right? Because we're born, but our parents wouldn't say that our birth is a cosmic event in time. But I would say that, Two billion people on the planet saying that this was the cosmic event in time means that it's definitely even if you even if you do not believe Jesus was who he said he was and and the stories about him and the historical evidence about Jesus, the fact that two billion people on this planet follow him and try to live their life dedicated to him is is noteworthy in a cosmic event in and of itself. Okay, I'll just tell you that right now. It was a cosmic event. All right, but we're going to move on to the, to that. Uh, we finished in verse 4. What I'd like to do is to go over to verse 5 and just read for a little bit. So this is 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. So this is Jesus. This is we've heard from Jesus and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So basically what John is saying here is that this is the message we heard from Jesus and declare to you, God is light. And in him, there's no darkness. So the early church believed this, that the metaphor of light over darkness is a very strong metaphor. If you know anything about darkness, it's the absence of light. 
And so therefore, light always overpowers darkness because light has energy. It has photons. It has an eminence from it, a, a vibration from it. It has radiation from it. But darkness is the absence of all that. If you go out into space, there's darkness. There's no light, although you'll get light reflected from various planets, which brings some amount of radiation into an area. It's really hard to get totally dark. But if you get to totally dark, it's the absence of light. And just the bare amount of light means the darkness has been overcome. Now, these are modern-day physical things, but John noticed this even early on, and the early church noticed this. And so this idea that light overcomes darkness is a very powerful metaphor because it means that any amount of light is going to overpower darkness. So any amount of Jesus, any amount of God, always overpowers the darkness. And the darkness, of course, is the evil forces of the cosmic universe that God allows to live out there, but he has complete and total control over because he is light and they're darkness. And light always overpowers darkness. I was um, recently given an interesting thing through the internet, and it said that uh, there are 200, well, I looked it up. There were like 200 tons Metric, 200 metric tons of space dust that fall on the atmosphere, eventually coming to the earth every day. And you don't see it, right? Because it's just space dust. But that's a lot. I mean, if you think about 200 tons of dust falling onto the earth, that's a lot of dust. But it, it's a very, very infinitesimally small. If the, if the earth is 600 billion billion tons, metric tons, it's a, it's a very, you know, 200 metric tons is... is Point oh one. I mean, it's not going to affect the gravity or anything like that. I mean, over a period of time, it does. Over a period of time, over over billions and trillions of years, you would have so much dust that it would put the Earth and you know whack it out of orbit and all that sort of thing. But but and you can use space dust. That the rate of space dust coming on the Earth and the mass of the Earth, you can figure out what's the maximum age that the earth could be, and it's actually not that old. So I'm <laughs> just saying that. Um, there had to be other asteroids. I mean, there has to be other things coming into the earth's atmosphere besides space dust. All right, so um, light overpowers darkness. We know that. And if we claim to have fellowship with the light and yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not live in the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So basically, this is this is this whole idea from the early church that when you are a follower of Jesus and in his kingdom, you should act and live your life as if you are in the kingdom. You should act as if you're in the light because he is in the light. And we should have fellowship with one another and we should have joy with one another. But if you're not doing that, then maybe you're in the way of darkness. And we even spent a whole study talking about uh, in the early teachings of the church about how there's the way of life and there's the way of death. And John is basically saying the way of life is the way of light. Uh, it's the way of truth. It's the way of hope. It's the way of healing. It's the way of salvation. It's the way of knowledge. It's all of this stuff is the way of life, of light. And if you're not, and if you're in the kingdom, this is the area. This is the way you should live your life. And if you're not in the kingdom or you're against the kingdom, then you're over here in the way of darkness. And there were lots of people at Jesus, you know, Jesus' time that were living in the way of darkness. It was all about themselves. It was all about power over people. It was all about um, destroying, crushing other people so that they might be elevated 
which is something that Jesus fought against. Jesus says, love your enemies, love people who persecute you, walk in the light. And so many Christians walk in the light because if we don't walk in the light, what happens? Well, in verse 8, it goes on. Verse 8, it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us from our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So according to John, walking in the light basically means that you have been cleansed from all sin. And as a matter of fact, in the Lutheran liturgy that I grew up with, we would, in page, uh, I don't know, page 15 or page 32, one of the hymnals, uh, one of the orders of service, we would actually say this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God who is faithful and just will cleanse our sins and forgive us from all unrighteousness. And the reason why that was put into the liturgy is because it is such a powerful statement that every Christian should have memorized. And that is, is that we all sin and we all fall short of God, but Jesus' blood and righteousness covers that sin and we are in the kingdom. Even though we are sinful people, we live in the kingdom. We love and we celebrate this and we live in joy with the fact that we're in the kingdom and I love the fact that I'm in the kingdom. I love the fact that God has cleansed me from all sin this brings me hope, it brings me truth, it brings me life, it brings me love, it brings me fellowship with other Christians, it brings me fellowship with God. All rights and privileges of the kingdom are mine because Jesus has cleansed me from the sin. But it's interesting that a couple things. First of all, I've actually had people come into my office and say, isn't there a better way to say this besides, besides Jesus cleanses us from all sin? And of course, as Christians, we're taken aback by this because, I mean, that's the whole purpose of Jesus, right? Is to cleanse us from all sin, right? That's the gospel. Except it's not necessarily the full, the full gospel. And there was a book that came out a number of years ago called The 3D Gospel, it's, it's interesting that Jesus used the words gospel, the good news. And when Jesus lived his life, he experienced life in ways that were broader than just the fact that he forgave sins. He healed people, so there was power there. He brought honor to people who were the lowest classes of society. There was uh, he, people who were living in shame like the woman at the well who was living in shame and she was outcast by the society and Jesus touched her life and brought her back to a life of, of honor. I wouldn't say life of honor, but, but definitely a life different than a life of shame. The gospel, the reason why it's called the good news, the angelion, the, the gospel, is because it's broader than just cleansing us from sin. And that is something that I did not really even realize until I'd kind of done some research into this because I think that being cleansed from sin is an awesome thing and I love the fact that Jesus has cleansed me from sin but it's not the only thing that Jesus has done at my baptism the Holy Spirit came into my life and now I have power in my life because the Holy Spirit lives and breathes in me and that is a reflection of Jesus also and also, I'm in the kingdom. And I think about the 
early Jewish people who were celebrating the Passover, that God came in and rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And every year they celebrate this Passover by gathering together and having this Passover meal. And when they have this meal, they drink lots of wine, eat lots of great food, and they lounge in the chair to indicate that they are children of the king. They, in the Passover meal, they they recognize that God favors them and they have this incredible honor of being the children of God. And so they act, for, at least for one night of the year at Passover, they act as if they're children of the living, breathing creator of the universe that rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. So all three of these concepts are in this book. And the concepts are this, basically that Jesus forgives our sins, but he also gives us power in a world of fear, and he also gives us honor in a world of shame. Now, John, being a person who lived in first century Jerusalem and having raised as a first century Jew, the fact that Jesus bought and purchased him and forgave his sins was huge in John's life. That's what he talks about in this letter. But throughout history and time, there have been other things and other cultures where the forgiveness of sins isn't the number one thing that Jesus does. So, for example, if you live in an African culture where there's voodoo and witch doctors and demons roaming around that are at the willing to snatch children, I think I've told this story before, but uh, there, a family member married into a different culture and and they had a child, and my sister said to that child, oh, what a beautiful baby. And the mother-in-law, the mother of the mother of this child, was angry at my sister for saying, what a beautiful baby, because you've activated the demons, and the demons are going to come and snatch away this baby's heart and soul because you've said it's a beautiful demon, or beautiful baby, and, and demons are roaming around the world looking for beautiful babies. And for a person from Western culture, this is totally foreign to us. But in that culture, the number one thing is the fear of demons coming around snatching children. And so you, you protect yourself against these demons. Well, if you are a follower of the light, if you are in the kingdom of God, you have the whole heavenly hosts of God at your ready to protect you against demons. That's a very powerful thing that resonates deeply into those cultures where it's this demon culture, this this uh, this culture of Ouija boards and dark arts, and um, the, the culture where there's demons around at every corner, knowing that Jesus protects you against that, that His Holy Spirit lives inside you with the, the battles, uh, the armies of God, that is a very powerful thing. And there's other cultures. There's other cultures where shame is the worst thing that can happen in your culture. And I, I think of these cultures where, for example, a woman might do something, might love another man her age and want to date that man or whatever, you know, does something that brings shame to the family. And the fam family will actually go out and do horrible. I, I think I've even heard stories where they'll go out and they'll kill this daughter because she brings shame to the family. Now, killing someone is against one of the Ten Commandments, and it's one of the sins that we can be cleansed from 
But if you are perfectly willing to kill somebody in your family to honor, to, to protect the family from, from shame, then that means in your particular culture, shame is more of a powerful thing in your life than the guilt of sin is. I remember as a uh, eighth grader reading this short story called Matteo Falconeo. Matteo Falconet. Matteo Falconet. And it was a story about this man living in Spain, and he has a son named Matteo. And this man's brother comes into the camp or comes into the house. Uh, he's running from the law enforcement agency, and he comes and tries to get uh, refuge from, from this uh, man. And while he's in the house, he hides, and then the police come, and they're looking for this man that's running from him, and they come up to Mateo, and they say, Mateo, have you seen this man? Well, Mateo's thought process is that he lives in this culture where you should always tell the truth, right? This forgiveness of sins, you should be truthful, and all that sort of thing. And he says, yes, this, this uncle of mine is in the house. So they come, and they arrest the uncle, they take him away. And the father is not upset with his son, or he uh, is angry with his son. Even though his son told the truth, he's angry that his son told the truth. Why? Because he brought shame to the family. And shame is a much bigger thing in that culture than telling the truth is, than, than forgiveness of sins. And so he takes his son out. He says, have you said your prayers yet? And he says, yes, I've said my prayers. And he goes the same again. Then he shoots and kills his son. And th this is, a, of course, this is a great story to read as an eighth grader, right? <laughs> but there's some important truths in here. And the important truths is that every culture views, views life through a different lens. We either live in a lens of guilt and forgiveness, or we live in a lens of honor and shame, or we live in a, in a lens of power and fear. And so when, when John is talking about the fact that Jesus covers us from all sin. He is talking about a guilt-innocence type of culture because that's what he grew up in. And the reason why I bring this all up is because in today's culture, this is just so ubiquitous, and, and the church hasn't really dealt with this very well. But we have the difference between forgiveness. The, the diff, there's a difference between honor, shame, and guilt-innocence. Guilt innocence is a very legalistic way of thinking about life. And the Old Testament has lots of laws that says if you do such and such, this is what the penalty from that sin is. So if you do X, Y, or Z, then we're going to come with uh, A, B, and C to punish you for that. But after the punishment is over, the debt is cleared and everything, and you can start over and live your life over. It's actually a great way for society to live. Because it means that there's redemption. But in an honor-shame society, once you have shamed, once you have shamed your family or your community or your culture, there is no coming back from that shame. And as I look at the United States today, we have this thing called cancel culture that even things that you did way back before your mind was fully formed, it could have been as 10th grader or 12th grader or 20-year-old or whatever, that once you've done something, you are no longer worthy of having a title of being a, you know, a respectable person in our culture. 
And so there are many, many, many powerful forces out there in our culture right now trying to shame people by saying you are not worthy of existence because you have done X, Y, and Z previously in your life and we're going to cancel culture you out. You don't deserve to be alive. You don't deserve to exist as a respected person in our culture. We're going to cancel you out. We're going to, we're going to, all sorts of things that we're going to do to you to make sure that you, that your infection doesn't infect us because we're honorable people and we don't like dishonorable people being in our culture. And so we'll tangentially say to people, well, you know, the blood of Christ forgives you of all those sins, but it doesn't really bring you back into the culture. And yet, if you understand deeply the words of Jesus and how he lived his life, he brought honor to people who are at the lowest level of respect and shame in those cultures. The, the, the lowest of all, women at the well who had done horrible things, you know, the woman at the well who had slept with the man or the man she was sleeping with wasn't her husband. She'd had four husbands or whatever, and she was shunned by her community. And yet Jesus came in and talked to her and healed her. And, and brought honor to her again. And, and the people that were at the lowest level of society because they, they believed that they were sick because God was punishing them. And that's why they were sick. And God heals them and brings them back from their sickness and brings honor to them. So the fact that Jesus can come into a person's life and bring honor is a huge thing. And... So when we read this in 1 John, we read it as forgiveness of sins. But we should understand, we should have deeper understanding that forgiveness of sins also comes with it. Honor. Like, we've been cleansed. In a society, we've been cleansed and we brought, we are no longer, the sins of our past are no longer going to shame us. The, the actions of the past no longer shame us. We can be brought back as fully honored guests in the culture around us because of Jesus. And if you live in a culture where it's fear that the Holy Spirit is in your life helping protect you against the demons that are wandering the world, trying to snatch your soul, that is huge for other cultures. So read into these words the fact that Jesus is light who fights against the darkness. And the darkness is shame. The darkness is fear. The darkness is, is the sins that we do in our life. All three of those, Jesus, the light of Jesus is against, you know, is more powerful than any of those things. So if you're living in a, in a culture that, that right now is a cancel culture, the, the messages of the good news of Jesus that you bring to people are like that. Well, you're a child of God. He loves you. Through your baptism, you're brought into the kingdom. And since you're in the kingdom, nobody can snatch you away from the kingdom. You have all rights and privileges of being a son or a daughter of the king, which is huge. All right, I think I'll close it there. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, thank you for being light in a dark world. Help us to live in the light as you are in the light. Because of your Son, in his name we pray. Amen.